Okay. Back in Daniel, Daniel chapter 5 is where we find ourselves, right in the middle, middle of the chapter. Daniel 5, we'll begin in verse 13. Cash rewards for information in criminal investigations are pretty common. I was perusing the federal government's Reward for Justice program. They have a whole website dedicated. They're offering rewards as high as five, 10, even $25 million for information leading to arrests of certain terrorists. And you can go by region and see the guys and all that kind of stuff. On the smaller end of the spectrum is Crime Stoppers. 498 stop, but I guess there's crime stoppers all over the place, all sorts of like uh, regions and areas. They offer a few thousand dollars for anonymous tips. The individual payouts may be smaller, but I was pretty surprised to learn that Crime Stoppers USA reported that as of December 2018, the following statistics related to their work. 712,000 arrests, $1.15 billion in property recovered, and $106 million paid out to tipsters. So don't play lottery scratchers. Just call in anonymous tips to Crime Stoppers. It's a ton of reward cash, but it's estimated that at least in some regions, almost half of the reward money goes unclaimed uh, when it's put out there. Now, when we last left off in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, was ruling in Babylon. Though the Medo-Persian empires had gathered at the city walls, the king had thrown a wild, drunken party for his court and a thousand of his nobles. After bringing out the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and using them to guzzle their booze and praise pagan idols, a miraculous hand appeared, writing a message in the plaster on the wall. In response, Belshazzar offered a huge reward to anyone who could read and interpret this message. The whole thing was a real party killer. Every party has a pooper, right? right? Uh, the king was particularly freaked out by it. None of the so-called wise men of Babylon were any help. At that point, the queen mother came in, told him that there was a man in the city who could be counted on to make sense of this message. And so the call went out to Daniel, who was probably in his 80s at the time, no longer employed in the palace. When Daniel gets on the scene, he has no interest in the king's rewards, but he is ready to preach the truth about God and the coming judgment not only of the nation, but of Belshazzar himself. So that gets us up to date. We begin at verse 13 as Daniel enters uh, the great hall full of drunk but terrified party guests. It says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? You know, we don't get a lot in the biblical record about King Belshazzar, just this one story, in fact. But the testimony of Scripture is very clear and it's pretty compelling. His was a sad and unfortunately a worthless life from the perspective of heaven. He may have been the ruler of the most powerful empire on the planet at the time. He may have had fabulous wealth, all the luxury one could want, an impressive pedigree. But in all the ways that actually mattered, it was just all a waste. He from the eternal perspective, because of the choices he made and his rejection of the God of heaven, he was wasting space, wasting his breath as he lived his life. Here he is, his enemies at the gate, making their way underneath the walls as they're even speaking and partying. And what's he busy doing? He's busy blaspheming God, spending his last few breaths as an individual uh, mocking his creator. 
In verse 13, he reveals he wasn't just wasteful in his personal life or his spiritual life. He was wasteful in the way he ruled as well. Think about this. He doesn't even know who Daniel is. Now, it's kind of easy to pass over that, but think about that for a minute. Daniel had been prime minister maybe for decades. Be like our president right now, not knowing who George H.W. Bush is. Who? You know, we're the nation's mourning the passing of George H.W. Bush. Uh, he was president a while ago, right? I don't know even who that guy is. Daniel had been the key figure in the government for many years. Daniel was, by all accounts, the smartest man in the nation, in the government. Not by a little bit, but by a long shot. His fame had spread throughout the empire. After all, this was a man who could tell you what you dreamed uh, the night before and what that dream meant. He was personal friends with Belshazzar's grandfather. And now, well, the first time Belshazzar had even heard of him was a few minutes ago. Uh, And so we kind of get a glimpse into what kind of king this guy was. Clearly wasn't real involved with what was going on. He wasn't real mindful. He wasn't looking for the best people to do the job. What a waste of an incredible resource. If you have Daniel and you're the king and you get to choose who does what job, I mean, that's your guy. You say, hey, you, you're doing this job. And he doesn't even know who Daniel is. And so this is the kind of guy that this king was. Now, for Daniel's part, notice this. Despite all he had done, despite all he had accomplished on an earthly level, the high rank that the Lord had set him up in years before, he's still seen as one of those captives from Judah. Hey, are you one of those slave captives from Judah? And Daniel's like, you mean like 70 years ago? Yeah. Daniel could have said, excuse me, but I ran the country while your dad was in diapers. That's what I would have wanted to say. But no, Daniel doesn't complain. He doesn't protest. He doesn't get offended and say, do you even know who I am? He could have done those things, but he didn't. I think he's fine with forever being seen as one of the captives from Judah because in reality, he wasn't a Babylonian, right? He may have been the key figure in the Babylonian government for decades, but I think if you asked Daniel at any point during that time, are you a Babylonian? He would have said, oh, no. No, I'm not a Babylonian. I belong to the God of heaven and earth. And this is a great reminder to us as we live out our little lives here on the earth. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are passing through on our way uh, to something eternal and something much, much better. And because of that fact, there should always be something other about us. We should never quite fully belong to this world. I mean, we shouldn't belong to this world at all, but as people kind of look at us and evaluate our lives, there should be something other, something that doesn't quite belong. Remember that old Sesame Street song, three of these things belong together, three of these things are kind of the same, but one of these things just doesn't belong here? It's like memory burned in my head. (laughs) But that's how Daniel was when he was around. He looked like a Babylonian. He had the garb, right? He spoke like a Babylonian. He had the education of a Babylonian. But everybody who looked at him and talked to him and knew about him knew, well, this guy's not really a Babylonian. He may have been the premier Babylonian from a governmental position. He's the prime minister, right? A lot of the scholars think that when Nebuchadnezzar went crazy, that Daniel ran the whole nation by himself, right? But everybody looked at him and said, well, that guy's not a Babylonian, And the same should be true of us. We don't belong to the world. We're citizens of a different kingdom. And so 
we uh, should live lives that can always be categorized as somewhat other, where we never really belong to this world, and we should let go of any desire that we have to demand worldly recognition. Uh, We find in the Bible that the godly are looking to heaven. They're looking future to something greater and something not yet. Verse 14 says, I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Twice Belshazzar is going to say, I have heard of you. And what he had heard was really significant. Now, most of us have neighbors, and even if you haven't met some of your neighbors, maybe on your block or in your neighborhood, uh, their reputation precedes them, right? The people in the apartment upstairs, uh, the weird house across the street. We all have neighbors that maybe we haven't met face-to-face, but we have ideas about them. Their reputation precedes them. What was uh, Daniel's reputation? You know, if those neighbors from a few houses down, if they came knocking at your door, what would you think? You're like, oh, you're the guy who leaves his Christmas lights up all year round. Your reputation precedes you. (laughs) If you leave your Christmas lights up all year round, God bless you. But what was Daniel's reputation? He was full of the Spirit of God. And because of that, he was a man of uncommon wisdom. This is what we are to be defined, uh, the way we are to be defined as Christians. Not that we have achieved, not, we're not defined by what we have achieved or what we have acquired, but by the filling of God the Holy Spirit and by heavenly wisdom that he provides. And that's exactly what was needed, uh, what the church was looking for when they were selecting the first deacons, right? They were having that problem in the first uh, church there in Jerusalem, problem of, of the distribution of goods to the widows. And what did they look for? It says in Acts 6, 3, Brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So exactly what we see demonstrated in Daniel is what was needful in the early church, looking for people to do a job. Godly people, like those first deacons in Acts or like Daniel, are people who are full of the Spirit and full of God's wisdom. Uh, they're, They're both, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Now, it doesn't mean that we always have an answer for everything. Now, Peter said, hey, be ready to give an answer, right? Uh, Christians are supposed to be growing in knowledge and growing in wisdom and growing in understanding of God's truth and the word of God and the ways of God and all of that. But we notice here in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, that godly people are people who are full of the Spirit and people who are full of God's wisdom. And so, Christians who don't know what to do or don't know what to say as they go through life, it's really not biblical. That doesn't mean that we never have a question, right? Or we're never, that we always have every answer for everything. But right now it's really popular sort of in the wider Christian world to be like, oh, who am I to say? I don't know. You see Christians on, you know, on television or in these different interviews and, saying, and they're asked a, a, an unpopular question or a hard question Can this person be saved? Is this activity wrong? What does the Bible say about this? And a lot of times those Christians are very faithful and they stand for what the Bible says and what the Lord has revealed. But really often right now we're seeing people say, who am I to say? I don't really know. And in reality, the Bible says that godly people who are Christians who believe are called to be full of the Spirit and to be full of wisdom, wisdom that is revealed by God and to share that truth with others. And so if you have a Christian or if you're in life, you kind of go through life and you're thinking, I don't have any answers to any of the questions that the world poses to me. I don't know what to do in any given situation. 
Well, that's not the way that the Lord wants you to live out your Christian life. And James says, hey, ask for wisdom because God wants to give it to you because Christians are to be defined by the filling of the Spirit and by wisdom. And we're also promised in addition to that if that we do find ourselves in a situation where we don't really know how to respond, we don't really know what to say, guess what? We're promised that as Spirit-filled believers, we can be confident the Holy Spirit will tell us what to say and how to say it in that situation. And so as we're growing in wisdom and knowledge and understanding and the truth, The Lord says, and hey, by the way, if you're brought before these different people who are questioning you and you don't know what to say, don't worry because I'll tell you what to say. And so it shouldn't be a pattern in the Christian life. It shouldn't be a regular uh, thing in the Christian life for us to say, I don't have answers to questions. I don't know what to do in a given situation. Okay, well, that's what revelation is for. That's what God's wisdom is for. That's what God's spirit is for. And if you're a Christian who's being asked on the news, you know, How does a person go to heaven after they die? I don't know, who am I to say? Okay, well, you're a Christian and Jesus Christ said how you get to heaven after you die. And so that's what we're talking about. We wanna be people who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of God's wisdom, growing in it, uh, imperfectly, of course, but confident that the Lord uh, will install that wisdom in us as we follow him. Verse 16, now, or excuse me, 15. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I've heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. So again, there in verse 16, we see that Daniel wasn't just some spiritual mystic. His religion wasn't just theoretical. He said, hey, I heard of you. I heard you're spiritual. I heard you're full of the spirit of your God. And then he says, and also I've heard that it's not just a theory or a philosophy for you, but that your faith has legs. You can do things with your faith. There was a real world activity to Daniel's religion. You, can, you are filled with the Spirit of God and you give interpretations and explain enigmas. Daniel could actually operate and help. So many philosophies and worldviews out there are just theoretical. Uh, you hear sometimes, for example, well, you know, communism works in theory. You know what that's another way of saying? Communism works in make-believe because every time it's t- tried in the real world, it doesn't work at all. Or some of these other strange, you know, religions that are out there or different worldviews. Well, if reality was different, this would work. Does it work in the real world? No, not at all. Okay, then it's just make-believe. Your faith has no teeth. Your faith has no legs. Christianity is a faith that can do things and that can work. Uh, sometimes theory is just another name for made up. And so we find here that Daniel's faith wasn't just a philosophy. It was power. And he was able to do jobs others could not do. And this is the kind of life the apostles had and the uh, you know, other followers in the first century church had, and it's the kind of experience they preached about. When we are in Christ, we're able to experience a life of invincible faith and impossible power. That's what Jesus said. That's what the apostles said. That's what the New Testament is all about. Because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, which is now given to us as his people, and we are his body on the earth, he says, now you're going to go out. Your faith's invincible. It doesn't matter when, you know, all of these powers and principalities, all of these things come against you. God is, Jesus Christ has overcome all of them. And now you have impossible power that can overcome all of these things. Peace that surpasses all understanding. You can say to this mountain, be uprooted and it'll do it. That's what the New Testament is all about. 
And we see it demonstrated with Daniel here. Verse 17, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. A true servant of God doesn't hide the truth behind a paywall. Remember that. It's popular right now for all the news sites. None of them can make any money. So they put the paywall up. You read one article, you don't get to read anymore. They let you read this much of the article and then the pop-up comes up just for 99 cents a month, X. That's what I do when that happens. But a servant of God, that's not how we're to operate in the church or as Christians. Christians don't put the truth behind a paywall. And we see here that Daniel wasn't greedy, but we also see that he wasn't afraid. This is just a great attribute I want us to consistently notice in these stories about his life. Daniel was not frightened, not as a young man, Uh, not in his middle age, not here as an older gentleman. He's not frightened. He's not afraid because he trusted his God. Now, this would not have been an easy situation in which to speak the truth. Think about it. He's there in a very hostile environment, in a place he'd probably rather not be, and he has a very tough message to deliver. At this point, he already knows that the message he's going to give is not a warm and fuzzy. But Daniel doesn't shrink or take advantage and say, actually, I want two gold chains And I want a gold chariot, and I want all these other things too. He just says, hey, keep your stuff. Let me tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth, even though it's going to sting a whole lot. And his example reminds us that we are commanded to speak the truth and to do so not just with boldness, but with love. And so I love his example here. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. We saw all this in detail in previous passages. Tonight, we would note that before Daniel shares the message of judgment, he gives context to the ways of God and the works of God. In this short little sermon, he revealed that there is a true and living God, that this God is gracious, generous, and long-suffering even toward his enemies, but that God is the one in charge of all things and that he is paying close attention to the lives not only of nations, uh, but also of men, and this God will not be mocked. So good, good little sermon he gives here. Verse 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels from his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. Stop there for a moment. Belshazzar couldn't plead ignorance about these things. Daniel said, hey man, you know these things. And we don't know all the backstory there, but I imagine either his grandfather had preached to him as a little baby boy, or he had at least been exposed to that evangelistic tract that we looked at back in the previous chapter. But having heard, Belshazzar rejected this message, and instead he hardened his heart with pride. One of the big subjects of this book is the terrible sinfulness of pride. God hates it, and he will not stand for it. 
And we should take the Lord's view of pride very seriously because it's a really serious thing throughout the Bible, but particularly in this book. As seen in this book, God will topple an entire nation because of this sin. And the problem is, the sin of pride is intrinsic to all of our hearts. We are all infected with pride because of sin. Now, the cure to this infection is humility. What did Daniel say? He said to uh, Belshazzar, hey, you, you should have humbled your heart, right? And we're told the same thing uh, throughout other parts of Scripture. Um, it's not only brought out in these passages, but in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. This issue is a big deal to God, and so it should be a big deal to us as well. We are told that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We're told by both Peter and Paul that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. We're told that it is required of us by God, but that when we humble ourselves, we're promised that the Lord will lift us up, that he'll guide the humble, and that through humility comes wisdom. For example, Proverbs eleven twelve: when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. And so all these things are, that we're reading about and talking about are, are connected throughout Scripture. Being spiritual, being wise, being used by God, contrasted with wasting your life and having shame brought in your life because of sin, having your life spoiled by pride. And Daniel and Belshazzar are exampling these truths for us and showing what a difference there is between the proud and the humble, right? Which reveals the fact that you cannot be spirit-filled and be proud at the same time. A Christian can't be spirit-filled and full of pride at the same time because the Bible says God resists the proud and that he opposes the proud. God hates pride. And so uh, we need to take this issue really seriously because it's clear from the Bible God takes it very seriously. Let's look at the rest of verse 23. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. I love this description of the work of God in the lives of human beings. It wasn't just Belshazzar's breath and ways that belong to the Lord. It's our breath and ways as well. Our part is to glorify God, meaning we are to honor him and magnify him with our lives, with whatever breath we have and in whatever ways he's led us down. We are to shine his glory and magnify his greatness. Verse 24, and the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. God was personally judging Belshazzar, and so whether you're a believer or not, God knows you personally. He knows you individually. He fashioned you in your mother's womb, and you will either be personally saved or personally judged. No one slips through the cracks. No one skates. That's the deal. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is the singular form of Upharsin. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So in this message, God gives Belshazzar the what that's going to happen, why it's happening, and by whose hand it will happen. The word mene there repeated twice has to do with a certain weight of shekels that people who understand Aramaic know about. And uh, all told, when you put it together, Bible scholars convert it over for us and it's about two and a half pounds. And so God looked at Belshazzar's life. He says, okay, uh, it's time to pay the piper and we're gonna put your life on the heavenly scale here. And guess what? It weighs two and a half pounds. It weighs less than one red brick, Belshazzar. You, the greatest man in all the world at that very moment, your life weighs less than one 
red brick, and that just will not do. You see, in ancient times, back then, before machines could make everything uniform, payments would often have to be rendered by weight, right? Because things were different sizes, chunks of gold or pieces of silver, right? And so they would say, that's why you see even in the Bible, you owe us this many pounds of salt, of gold, of silver, of oil, those sorts of things. And that's how payments were rendered. And so they would say, hey, you owe this much weight to pay off your debt. And so when Belshazzar's life was put on the scale, he says, well, you weigh less than one red brick, Belshazzar. Uh, And uh, it would have been interesting because Belshazzar would have been in the habit of receiving payments no doubt, received as ransom or as tribute from many nations across his empire on a regular basis. Pounds and pounds and pounds and probably tons of precious stones and gems and gold and silver. But when the time came for him to pay his creator, he was more than short. He had nothing with which to ransom his life. He says, hey, the Lord, God came to him and said, here's what you owe. Let's see how much you have. Not even close, man. Uh, interesting. At the end of human history, all those who don't have saving faith in Christ will stand before God's great white throne. We're told books will be opened, lives will be measured, and that each one will be found insufficient. No one will be able to ransom themselves. Now, in the meantime, as Christians, as believers, we're told the Christian life works in us, quote, an eternal weight of glory. I love that. It says, hey, you believe in Jesus, guess what's going to happen? God is just going to add eternal weight upon weight upon weight to your life in a great way. Just stores of rewards and resources and all of these different things where it's like, man, that person is worth their weight in gold. Look at what God has done in that life. And so we stand before the Bema, not shown as less than one red brick, but will be shown as gold, silver, and costly stones because of the greatness of Christ working in us. Great picture there. Without Christ, life is wasted. In this passage, the most powerful man in all the world is shown to be like weightless chaff in the light of eternity. And a secondary lesson here is to notice just how fast God can move and change the course of human history. In a day, he took Nebuchadnezzar off of his throne. In one night, he would not only remove Belshazzar, but the whole Babylonian empire would be gone. In a night, just like that, the greatest world power on the planet was just gone. It's a remarkable thing. And so we must not put the hope of our hearts in some human leader or in some nation or in some system. We put it in the Lord who rules uh, over all kings and all nations and all generations. He's our hope. And he's the one that we put our trust in. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck, made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Maybe Belshazzar was trying to put a positive spin on this, put on a brave face, who knows? Maybe he was just laughing, didn't believe what Daniel said, we don't know. Either way, these worldly treasures were as worthless as his life had been. What good is being third ruler in a kingdom that doesn't exist 12 hours later? Uh, Daniel was wise not to be enamored of these material things. Verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Daniel foretold this, obviously. So did Isaiah back in his book. And it all happened just as God said it would. As predicted, the head of gold from Nebuchadnezzar's vision gave way to the chest and arms of silver. The Medo-Persians were now the ruling world empire. Let God be true and every man a liar. 
Now, as we close tonight, I'd like us to take one more look there at the end of verse 23, just for a minute or two, where it says, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. The word glorified there, meaning magnify or honor, can also mean to adorn. Your life can be spent adorning the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways. And this text demonstrates pretty clearly that you don't have to be wealthy or powerful to to do that. To adorn your God, you could be like a captive slave boy that Daniel was so many years before, or an old retired guy like Daniel was in the text. Uh, In fact, we notice here the captive was the one who brought God glory, not the king. You don't have to be wealthy and powerful to adorn your God. You just have to obey him and trust him and walk in the ways that he owns, right? The question is, how am I adorning my God in my life? It sort of reminds me of the end of a Charlie Brown Christmas. They've got that little tree, right? Barely strong enough to even stand up on its own. Uh, Everybody's upset at how weak the little tree is. Charlie Brown liked it, but they said, can't you even tell a good tree from a poor tree? I don't know, maybe if you're like me, maybe you think that kind of feels like how my life is. I feel like I'm not a big, shiny aluminum tree. I kind of feel like the little tree that when you touch it, all the things come off, right? But even a tree like that, what happens at the end? Something magnificent happens. The Peanuts gang simply decide it needs a little love. And what do they do? They take the ornaments and the decorations that were available to them. And then they put their hands through the work. They spin around like this. And guess what? Suddenly that little insignificant tree is impossibly ornate to a silly level. It's this perfect, shining, filled out, uh, amazing, dramatic, trans- dramatically transformed tree. And it's glorious and it's a great moment and you have the reveal, right? Charlie Brown shows up and wow, that was the little tree. And what was the difference? Yeah, very little. It was just that the kids decided, you know what? We're going to make the decision to make this tree something. And we're going to use what we had from Snoopy's house and we're just going to put it on there and, and then through the magic of cartoon animation, it becomes this impossibly ornate and wonderful little tree. And I can't help but see some similarities between that and how we, weak as we may be, can allow God to work in us. And as we cooperate with him, our lives become glorifications of his power and his person. The Bible gives us some instruction about how we adorn the Lord through humility, by living with a gentle and quiet spirit, by responding to God with trust and obedience, But then we also see living examples of how a person can wonderfully glorify and magnify and adorn the Lord in characters like Daniel and all the other characters we love so much in the Bible. Daniel here glorified God through his faithfulness, through willingness to speak the truth, by being full of the Spirit. And the good news is we don't have to come up with the strategies ourselves, right? We don't have to say, well, I have to figure out on my own how to glorify God, how to adorn my God. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, we're told it is God who owns our ways and gives us life that we might walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand. Book of Ephesians. Paul's saying, hey, walk in those good works that God has prepared for you beforehand. Discover those things. Follow the Lord. Be led by God. 
Submit to God by obeying him and trusting him, and he's gonna lead you. He's gonna show you which way to go so that you can accomplish the good works he wants you to do so that he can work in your life in eternal weight of glory so that you can be filled with all these rich rewards when you stand before the bema. It's such a good deal. It's an amazing thing. And our little lives here in Hanford or wherever, all of a sudden you turn around at the end of our life and Jesus is going to be like, look, you were this little droopy over tree when all the needles were falling off and just like that, look at the work that I did in your life. The, your life was like a vapor, but man, we did something here. As you submitted to me and as you were filled with my power and with my spirit and allowed me to do what I wanted to do in your life, as you cooperated with that, look at the fruit that I bore and look at the gold that came out of that thing. Look at the power of God working through your life. That's the idea here. And so we respond to God with trust and obedience and we want to be full of the Spirit. We don't have to come up with strategies ourselves. It is God who owns our ways, gives us life. And as we walk in His wisdom by His Spirit, keeping heaven in the forefront and remembering who we are in Christ, well, then our lives will magnify the Lord, adorning Him, working in us an eternal weight of glory. But it is a work we must submit to and participate in. Remember, Lucy and the kids mocked that Christmas tree at first, but it was then when they humbled themselves, right? They changed their minds, humbled themselves, and then they accomplished something great. And so let's decide to adorn the Lord with whatever breath that we have and decide to go his way and say, you know what, Lord, you said this is who I am. I believe you, and I'm going to walk in your truth, discovering those good things that you've prepared beforehand.